If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 31. Today we're going to be looking at a number of passages, um, and you could either write them down or uh, follow along if you would um, as I read. About three years ago, we examined the issue of fear, seeing that we live in a culture of fear. And the questions that we tried to answer in the series was, how are we as God's people to obey the most repeated command in Scripture, do not be afraid? How are we to be followers of Jesus in a culture of fear? Today we will look, or we begin to look at the matter of the fear of the Lord. You know, there was a time when to be known as a God-fearing person was a good thing, a desired thing. But if the most repeated command in Scripture is, do not be afraid, how can being a God-fearing person be a good thing? I want us to begin this series today by looking at the theme or the idea of the fear of the Lord from throughout Scripture, beginning in the Old Testament, beginning here in Genesis 31, through the book of Revelation. There are more than 150 references to the fear of the Lord found throughout Scripture. And for that reason, we could choose any number of texts or any passages as our text. Uh, I think the most familiar is found in Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're not going to look at all 150 references. It may seem like that at a certain point. But rather, a representative group of texts that give us insight and a sense of the importance of the idea of the fear of the Lord. We'll begin in the Old Testament. And here we are in Genesis chapter 31. It's a story of Jacob. Jacob had run away from uh, his father, from his brother particularly, uh, knowing that Esau wanted to kill him. And so he went and worked for Laban. And he worked for the two wives that uh, he got, the two sisters, Leah and Rachel. And after being with him for 20 years and basically being ripped off by his father-in-law, Jacob decided to leave. Uh, he met with his wives and they said, listen, our dad has treated us badly as well. So they snuck off. And it was several days before Laban found out that they were gone. When he found out, he immediately pursued them. And the night before he caught up to them, the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said to him, basically, don't say anything to Jacob, whether good or bad. Amazingly, Laban continued the pursuit. And when he got there, he scolded him for leaving without saying goodbye. He says, you know, if you told me you were leaving, we could have had a goodbye party. We could have you know, had dancing and singing and a feast. And instead, you snuck off uh, with my daughters and my grandchildren. And, by the way, somebody in your camp stole my gods. And Jacob says, listen, if you can find your gods in this camp... Uh, whoever has them, you can put to death. He didn't realize that Rachel had, in fact, stolen Laban's gods. Laban didn't find them, and when he doesn't find them, uh, Jacob makes, re, returns the favor of scolding him. And our, what I want to look at is verse number 42. He says, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship 
and the toil of my hands, and last night he rebuked you. Interestingly enough, this is one of the names of God that we find in the book of Genesis, the fear of Isaac. He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, that part we're familiar with. Later on, the God of Jacob. But here he is also referred to as the fear of Isaac. There have been some people who say, actually, this is not a name for God. This is simply Jacob saying, listen, um, you better watch out because my daddy is going to get you. You know, if you cause us any trouble, you should be afraid of Isaac. But if you look at verse number 52, um, verse number 53, uh, where Jacob swears an oath, the two of them make an agreement that I'm not going to come this far. You're not going to come past this. And in verse number 53, May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father, Isaac. This is a name for God, the fear of Isaac. In scripture, God's names are very important because they reflect who he is. They are a revelation of who he is. And here at the beginning, we see that true biblical fear of God is as much a part of a response to his character, so much so that he is called the fear of Isaac. And this is where our study begins. That one of the earliest names we find in the book of Genesis for God is the fear of Isaac. There's a part of us, a part of me, that thinks that the fear of the Lord is some type of aberration. And yet here we find it, it is who God is. The second place we'll look at is in Exodus chapter 18. If you want to look there, Israel is making its way towards Sinai. It's a long journey. There are more than 600,000 people. And on the way, they are met by Jethro, who is Moses' father-in-law. And Jethro is sort of the head of his tribe. And he notices that everyone comes to Moses and Moses has to make all the decisions. And he's like, this is not good. You're going to burn out. You need to designate other men to help you in administrating or doing the administration of these people. And what he tells them in verse number 21 is select capable men from all the people, men who fear God. Trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So break the people down into tens, fifties, hundreds, thousands, and then have men who will make decisions. Because so, <coughs> otherwise, Moses has to make a decision on every case for over 600,000 people. And that's simply not going to be possible. He could not deal with all the problem of the Israelites. So the requirements are laid down. And the first thing and the most important thing mentioned is that they fear God, no matter what other qualities they may have, leadership, administrative abilities, charisma. If, in fact, they were not men who feared God, then they could not be men in positions of leadership. They would not be qualified to be men who administer justice and solve the problems of Israel. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, what we find in Deuteronomy is a retelling of the law. It's almost been 40 years since Israel left. It's been almost 40 years since Sinai. You have a whole new generation. And basically, Deuteronomy is a retelling of the story for this new generation. 
Um, some of them had not been born yet. Some of them were quite young when all these things happened. And so Moses is giving an account of what happened and explaining what, in fact, they are supposed to do. So in Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 and 2, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live, by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy a long life. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 10, if you want to turn there, um, verses 12 and 13. 12 and 13. Now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. So we find that leadership among God's people requires the fear of the Lord as a quality, but even among God's people themselves, the first thing that is mentioned is that they are to fear the Lord your God. Then we can go to the book of Job. And in the book of Job, we turn, as it, if you wish, from a nation to an individual. We have leadership, we have the people of God, but now we have a single person. And the book of Job opens with these words. In the land of Uz, there was a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. The description of Job as someone who is blameless and upright touches on the outward, if you wish, what you could observe about Job as a man. That he feared God is an inward disposition, and it produced these patterns. This this description, by the way, is repeated in verse number 8. If you're in Job chapter 1, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on the earth like him. He is blameless and upright. Again, the outward behavior. A man who fears God and shuns evil. And how does Satan respond? The next verse, verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Simply put, God believes that the basis of Job's godliness and his good behavior, if you wish, is the fear of God. Satan believes that the basis of Job's godliness is self-serving fear. He fears God because he knows that there are good benefits to that. In either case, both see Job as someone who fears God. And that basically is what leads to this whole crisis because Satan is convinced that Job only fears God because of the benefits he can get out of it. Side note, later on in the book, as Job is answering one of his comforters, Bildad, he says, where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? And he, that is God, said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. And then we turn now to the Psalms. And in the book of Psalms, we find that the fear of Lord, the Lord is something that is mentioned uh, quite often. A book of songs and of prayers, oftentimes a retelling of what God has done for his people in the past. In Psalm 67, we read of God of proclaiming the good news, God's mercy, to the ends of the earth, to all nations. Psalm 67 opens this way. 
May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Sila. This should be familiar. This is part of the ironic uh, blessing that is to be pronounced. That your ways may be known on earth, that is God's ways known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Okay, this is a nice prayer, but how are we going to know if in fact God's salvation has been made known to all nations? Verse number 7. God will bless us and all the ends of the earth will fear him. Is this a sign of God's mercy? That people fear God? Well, if you look at Psalm 103, this psalm deals with the fear of the Lord, um, I think more than most passages that we find. It opens with these words. Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Then look at verse number 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The mark of the people of God is that they are people who fear him. It is the fear of the Lord. One could make the argument that if there is no fear of God, then one in fact may not be a child of God. But if one does fear God, one is a recipient of grace and mercy. There are other places, and I'll just mention one in passing. Uh, Titus spoke on this psalm, I think the last time he spoke, Psalm 130, verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Then the book of Proverbs. It is in the book of Proverbs that we find by far more references to the fear of the Lord than any other passage or any other book in Scripture. In the opening of the book, if you turn to Proverbs chapter 1, Solomon basically explains the purpose of the book. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance, for understanding proverbs and parables, for sayings and riddles of the wise. The very next verse, this is the introduction, the first six verses, the very next verse, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge but fools despise wisdom and discipline. It is later in the book, in chapter 9, that we find our second text, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We will look at this more in the weeks to come. But to state it simply, the fear of the Lord is the chief part of our learning. If we are the people of God, 
if you wish, the ABCs, the basic things that we learn, begin with the fear of the Lord. And everything else we learn flows from that. It is as though teaching a child the alphabet and how to read. There's no point here in my 60s, I still need to know the alphabet in order to read. In the same way, the fear of the Lord is that basic to our lives as God's people. It is not something that we learn, the fear of the Lord, and then we conveniently set aside. It is the basis of all of our understanding. Without the fear of the Lord, there is no knowledge, there is no understanding, and there is no wisdom. Let me just mention a few other verses in Proverbs that speak of the fear of the Lord. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 27, The fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the the years of the wicked are cut short. In chapter 14, 27, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. In chapter 15, verse 33, The fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom, and humility comes before honor. And then in chapter 19, verse 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. We've looked at Job, one of the wisdom books and Psalms and Proverbs. One more, and that is Ecclesiastes. And in this book of wisdom, we hear the insights of a man who surveyed all possible avenues to gaining satisfaction, meaning, a purpose in life. And at the end of the book, he comes up with this conclusion. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Then we move on to the last part of the Old Testament, the prophets. And here, if you would turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Um, This is a passage I'd like you to look at. Isaiah 11. depending on what version you have or what notes you have with this, Isaiah 11 is a messianic passage. It's talking about the Messiah, the one who is to come. Verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Verse number three, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. What we see in Isaiah 11 is that the coming Messiah's character would be marked by the reality that he would live and move and delight in the fear of the Lord. Um, This should, we'll come to this later in the series, but this should eliminate any... uh, any doubt or any questions we might have in our thinking that the fear of the Lord is incompatible with the grace of God or God's favor. It's in the very context of the Spirit of God coming on the Messiah that we read that it is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And if you remember, when the Spirit came on Jesus at his baptism, he then heard the words, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. By the way, just a, a parenthesis, a side note here, make a correction over something I said the last two sermons, I think, that I said that it was after the, after the time in the wilderness that Jesus was baptized. Actually, he was baptized and then the time in the wilderness.
but the Spirit of God comes on him, the Spirit of the fear of the Lord, and he hears the Father saying, This is my Son whom I love. So the Messiah will be marked by the fear of the Lord. But also the Messiah's people will be marked by the fear of the Lord. So if you would turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. This is a passage, a prophetic passage, like Isaiah 11. It is looking ahead to the future. At this point, Judah is going to go into exile. And so, certainly a dark day. This is not something to be desired. And in many ways, one would say, for them, it seemed like the end of the world. But God speaks to Jeremiah, beginning in verse number 36. Jeremiah 32, 36. Hold on, let me... Okay. Verse 36. You are saying about this city, by the sword, famine, and plague, it will be handed over to the king of Babylon. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people, and I will be their God. Verse 39. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and the good of the children, their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. One of the marks of the new covenant is the fear of the Lord. So we have, as the Old Testament prophets look ahead to the coming of the Messiah, he would be marked, the Spirit would come on him, the Spirit of the fear of the Lord, but also the Lord would inspire his people, the people of Messiah, to fear the Lord. But we're in the Old Testament, and this raises the familiar objection, that's Old Testament. Uh, we are now, in the, after the time of the New Testament, the full revelation of God's love and grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. The sacrificial system is set aside. If you wish, the Old Testament was shadows. And so the fear of the Lord sort of fits in with that shadowy thing. Now we've come to the New Covenant. Uh, the fear of the Lord should not be something that interests us or should be a part of our lives as God's people. I would remind you, though, of what we saw about the Messiah in Isaiah 11, that the fear of the Lord would be on him, and that Messiah's people here in Jeremiah 32, that is something that should mark their lives as well. But let's go to the New Testament then. And I think the first passage that comes to mind for me is in Luke chapter 1, in what we call Mary's song. She's been told by Gabriel um, that she will conceive and have a son. She's gone to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth has sung this great song of praise. And in verse 49, she says, For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. Mary saw what had happened to her as an example of God's grace, His mercy, that is extended to those who fear Him. As much as to say, if one does not fear the Lord one does not experience the grace or the mercy of God. 
let's go to the Gospels. In the Gospels, we find the Gospel that is the good news. For many people, the good news is about joy and love and forgiveness. And certainly, this is a part of the message. But we should not think that the fear of the Lord is absent. One passage will do, I hope. It's found in Matthew chapter 10, in which Jesus tells his disciples, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Um, the ESV has fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Let's be clear. Jesus was not on a mission to do away with the fear of the Lord. Instead, he enforced it by commanding his disciples to possess a fear of the Lord. Again, a side note here. Um, for many years, I did not understand verse, this verse to be speaking of God. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both uh, soul and body in hell. For some reason, I thought it was the devil, Satan. He does not have that power. It is only God who has that power. And so Jesus is basically commanding his disciples, you don't need to fear anything. You do need to fear God. Okay. In the book of Acts, we see the early church living out the good news. They have received the gospel. They have put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. They have been baptized and now the church is progressing. There is a problem, though, in chapter 8. There is persecution. And then we come to chapter 9 of Acts, Acts 9. And what we find at the beginning is that Saul is persecuting the church, but then Saul is miraculously he's confronted and converted on the road to Damascus. He begins preaching the gospel in Damascus. He comes to Jerusalem and meets the apostles. Barnabas takes him to the apostles because everyone's sort of afraid of Saul. He begins to preach in Jerusalem and there are threats made against his life. And so the apostles send Saul home to Tarsus. In the very next verse, Acts 9.31, we read, this is from the ESV, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now this is one of those places where we seem to have an apparent contradiction. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Because one would say, well listen, if I'm comforted, then I should not have fear. If I have fear, maybe I need to be comforted. But how can I walk in the fear of the Lord and be comforted by the Holy Spirit at the same time? We tend to think that wherever there is the Holy Spirit's comfort, there is no fear of the Lord. It's um, not the case at all. The same Spirit that rested on Jesus, that Isaiah prophesied, is the same Spirit that the ascended Christ poured out on the church. The Spirit is the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. And just as the, the fear of the Lord characterized Jesus, it has characterized his people. And we certainly see that in Acts chapter 9. Then we come to the epistles. And here we could spend an entire sermon, but we won't. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes to the Corinthians, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Just before that, and remember the chapter divisions are arbitrary, the verses before that, Paul has been talking about 
relationships that we are not we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers the major area of concern in pursuing holiness is our relationship with other people if you wish for job we see him as blameless for god's people in the new testament we are to be marked by our personal relationships I'll only mention one passage in this regard, and it's familiar to you. It's uh, Ephesus, uh, sorry, Ephesians, written to the people in Ephesus, Ephesians 5.21. This is a passage that is oftentimes read at weddings. You know, husbands are supposed to love their wives, things like that. Very rarely do people begin where they should. Look, if you would, at Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, I would like you to see this. Ephesians 5. As I said, most people begin at verse number 22. But in fact, we should look at verse number 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then Paul begins to talk about husbands and wives, wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. But all that Paul writes about relationships presupposes a fear of the Lord or reverence for Christ. Other passages could be mentioned. Philippians 2, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. We'll look at this later in the series. But for now, let's be clear that the fear of the Lord, reverence for Christ, the fear of God, are to be dominant characteristics in the life of every Christian. If a person says, I do not have the fear of the Lord, um, then I would say biblically, we have the good basis to say, maybe you in fact are not a child of God. Because one who is a child of God is to be marked by this. Well, the question may come up, you know, just as the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge, is that stuff that we can learn and then discard? As Christians, when we're new Christians, we learn to fear God. But then at a certain point, we don't need to do that anymore. Once we mature as adults in the faith, the fear of the Lord is just something we can set aside. Um, no. Peter, in writing his first epistle, says, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The NIV has live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. The ESV has conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. How long are we in exile? We are in exile until we die. We are in exile here on this earth. And this entire time we are to be marked by the fear of the Lord. This is a characteristic of God's people. There is no point in my life as a Christian at which I can say, I don't need to have the fear of the Lord. I don't need to have it anymore. And as if, I think, to drive the point home, Peter says, oh, by the way, 
you were redeemed not by things like gold and silver, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, there needs to be a sense of awe and reverence and fear. You can't just say, well, yeah, yeah, I, I did that back when I got saved and I said the prayer and I became a Christian. And, and so now I can set that aside. It is always to mark our lives. One more place and then we'll be done. And that is the book of Revelation. We have looked at things in terms of creation this past year, pointing to the new creation. So the question is, is the fear of the Lord something creation? Or is it going to be something in the new creation? What we find is that the fear of the Lord is pictured as a part of worship in the new creation. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is in Revelation 15. The fear of the Lord is seen as marking the worship of the redeemed in the eternal state. So it's not just a creation thing. It is, in fact, a new creation thing as well. In the scene from the marriage supper of the Lamb, we read, And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. From the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. What I've tried to do today is to give you an overview from Scripture of the fear of the Lord, to show that it is a dominant, a predominant theme in Scripture, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament and not only in creation, but in the new creation as well. If we don't accept this, if you don't accept this, then we really don't have anything to talk about. You might say, well, wait a minute, Damon, you haven't defined for us the fear of the Lord. You haven't told us what makes up the fear of the Lord. You haven't told us the source of the fear of the Lord. We will get to that in the weeks to come, the Lord willing. What we need to do here at the beginning is to see that the fear of the Lord is a theme throughout Scripture. It isn't an Old Testament thing back before they knew about Jesus. It is both Old Testament and New Testament. And if nothing else, I'm just, in, in preparing for this, just really struck that Jesus himself, the Messiah, the Spirit comes upon him and the fear of the Lord. I think, frankly, if I could make a judgment about the church at large today, there doesn't seem to be much fear of the Lord. It seems incompatible with the gospel that we've been peddling. Because we want people to be happy. We want them to have a sense of fulfillment. Um, To tell people, listen, you need to have the fear of the Lord. Uh, People won't like that, so we don't mention that. But if it is fundamental to knowledge and wisdom, if it is the characteristic that marks the Messiah and his people, then it's pretty important. And we as a congregation need to look into this matter and uh, perhaps we are guilty of not having the fear of the Lord. 
It's one of those things that we've sort of set aside. We thought, well, that's sort of a childish thing. That's an Old Testament thing. Um, let's talk about God's love and God's the joy that he gives us. We're not going to ignore those. We're not saying that the fear of the Lord sets those aside. Quite the opposite. It is because of the fear of the Lord that we can have joy and we can experience the love of God and his grace and his mercy. So again, what I've tried to do is to show you from Old Testament, the New Testament, from God's saints in the Old Testament to the New Testament, and even the incarnation, Jesus in the flesh, marked by the Spirit coming upon him in the fear of the Lord. The Lord willing, next Sunday we will look at what the fear of the Lord means. Um, What I want from you today is to say, yes, Damon, you're right. The fear of the Lord is something that I need to know more about. It is to be a characteristic of a child of God. Let's pray together. Father, in a culture that is just suffused with fear, people seem to want to make us afraid. We turn on the TV and watch the news, read the newspaper, just in conversations. Fear seems so predominant and so We want to set that aside as your people. We do not want to fear. But then we wonder, what does this mean, the fear of the Lord? We thank you for your word, the revelation of yourself, which you've told us the things that we need to know. What we find throughout is that your people are marked by the fear of the Lord. Open our hearts, humble our hearts to receive your truth in the weeks to come. That as Jesus was marked by this, as the early church was marked by this, as those in eternity will be marked by this, may we be marked by the fear of the Lord. We remember people on the East Coast who have been battered by weather. We ask for your protection, for your supply, as they begin to dig out for those that are affected by flooding, that you would provide for them as well. May they come to see you as the God of all creation. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.